today I welcome Michael Latham, president at Punahou School in Hawaii. In this episode, I discuss balancing tradition and innovation, celebrating diversity and the importance of cultural roots, preparing students in paradise for the real world, and US history and foreign relations, and what impact does that have on a remote Pacific island? I want to talk about Punahou. It was founded in 1841. It's a school with great tradition. And at the same time, it has a spirit of renewal. The name of the school itself means new spring, does it not? Part of that renewal is an em- emphasis on innovation. How does Punahou drive innovation whilst also honoring its essential traditions? It's a really good question. You know, I think more than any other institution I've been a part of, this one has a very strong sense of place. As you mentioned, we were founded in 1841. It was actually Congregationalist missionaries from New England, from Massachusetts, who founded the school. And they did so primarily to create an institution where they could send their own children. That was their initial interest, because previously they were loading their seven or eight-year-old kids onto uh, ships and sending them across the Pacific and then around the coast of uh, South America and then back up to New England. They would be gone for several years, and there were these heartrending scenes at the docks in Honolulu as these austere New England missionaries sent their children off into the deep to go off back to school. Uh, And they finally decided they couldn't do that anymore, that they wanted to create a school to raise their own children. And before long, they began to open the doors of the school to kids from the local community, kids from the children of other Anglo-American settlers, but before too long, Hawaiian children, and then over time, children from many different backgrounds as Hawaii became an increasingly cosmopolitan place. That sense of history is certainly a huge part of the school's identity. The center of our campus is actually built around that spring that you mentioned. There's a chapel, which is in fact uh, directly over the spring itself, and there's a pond surrounding that chapel. So I think that part of what we always do is in all of our community gatherings, in in all of the events that we do, there's, there's constantly a reference to this, what my predecessor would call the two gifts that shaped Punahou. One, this inheritance of a, a missionary interest in and commitment to education alongside a distinctively Hawaiian way of looking at the world and an indigenous culture that not only ultimately provided the land on which the school sits, but also a way of building relationships, thinking about nature, thinking about your commitment and social responsibility. And to that, I personally would add kind of a third gift, which is this collection of people from all around the world who ultimately came to find a home here. And Hawaii is a very cosmopolitan, multiracial, intergenerational kind of institution. I think for us, it's we constantly go back to that sense of place. We go back to that sense of history. And I think that we try to do so in ways that respect it and recognize it, but we're very interested in innovation. And our challenge really is to innovate from a position of strength. There are lots of places that have to innovate because it's, it's either do that or, or you cease to exist. Our challenge, I think, is to continue to create a sense of urgency such that we innovate in a way that continues to allow us to prepare our students for a world that's rapidly changing and, and helps them develop a new set of abilities. So. That's, in some ways, I think what makes us distinctive is that there's this very deep sense of history, 
alongside a recognition that our students are graduating into a world that is quite different than the one that many of even our own teachers came of age in. And we have to think carefully about that. How do you go about balancing the changes and the innovations that you bring in that maybe cause a little bit of disruption or unease with your existing community? You're obviously an old boy, an alma mater of Punahou yourself. And there's traditions that are probably in place and things that they did at the school when you were at Punahou that maybe don't exist now. But you've got to, as you said, you've got to adapt an education and a campus to provide a place where these students can learn the skills rather than there's another side where you think you're a paradise island, right? So surely there's no innovation that goes on there. And you've got to kind of balance this destination of luxury and beaches and just that's just surely Hawaiian time. It's fun with the realities of tech innovation, skill-based learning. How do you rationalize those things? You know, for us, I think it's constantly coming back to the students and talking in a thoughtful way about what we really need to do to serve the students well and to prepare them. It's really interesting. If we've been doing a lot of thinking about the key abilities and capacities that our students are going to need to thrive as they go off into to a world that's far more globally interconnected than ever before, a world that's been transformed both in higher education and in the workplace by technologies. And I think what we realize is that while there are a number of things which still remain uh, central to the education we deliver, And I would describe these as sort of classic liberal arts capacities, your ability to write effectively, to make a compelling oral argument, to understand the scientific method, to have good quantitative reasoning. All of those things still matter. And those are things which are deeply rooted in the history of the school. And to that, I would add a number of things which I think reflect a changing environment. And I would think about your capacity to collaborate together, working in teams your ability to draw knowledge from different fields and apply it to an authentic real-world challenge or problem, your ability to understand these interdisciplinary challenges that we face, whether it's climate change or renewable energy or food security or global public health, all of those are these inherently multidisciplinary challenges. And you have to get really good at collaborating in teams, drawing knowledge from different fields and applying it to that. I also think about, for example, our students' capacity for empathy. How do you have a reasonable or thoughtful conversation with somebody who you profoundly disagree with? There's a real need for that, I think, in the United States, certainly today, perhaps more widely. And I think those are things which we've really given much more attention to and much more thought to than we did perhaps even a generation ago. But to do that, we have to explain the rationale. We have to talk to parents. We have to talk to our faculty. We have to talk to others about why alongside those traditional things, there are other things that we also really value. And we're now moving our curriculum and our teaching in that direction. And I think that becomes challenging, but it's also, you know, what we have to do. But I think if we can keep the students at the center and talk about what we're ultimately preparing them for and why we think this is the best path, that serves us pretty well. Yeah, and I think sometimes schools get mixed up with maybe teaching methods as tradition, as opposed to tradition that are meaningful and are rooted in the origin story and the life of the school and the growth of the school, as well as the values. And values don't really change unless they are values that are born out of something that is of today diversive. I kind of really get that. You mentioned liberal arts, and prior to your time at Punahou, 
you were leading Grinnell College in Iowa. How did that experience inform your leadership now at this school? Two things really stand out for me. The first is that it was so obvious to me that the nature of higher education was changing. You know, that previously uh, colleges were very interested in recruiting students who could memorize the textbook, do well on a standardized exam, and at the appropriate moment sort of, you know, bring back the knowledge that they sort of had pounded into them. And I think what was becoming very clear was that we were at the college level, certainly at the university level, becoming much more interested in students who had a kind of, I would describe as a sort of an intellectually curious, intellectually assertive cast. We wanted students who were going to be very creative, who were going to be willing to dive in, to engage with faculty, to take on new ideas. At Grinnell, we became very involved in a great deal of student research, and that became sort of a central part of our curriculum. Our students were publishing papers alongside faculty, oftentimes co-authors on major journal articles. They were making presentations at national conferences. They were involved intellectually and personally in ways that were really quite striking. And I think what that meant was that when I arrived at Punahou, it meant that I was very interested in thinking about how we continue to promote students who are, um, I think, going to bring that kind of combination of curiosity and drive, I would say, that it's not enough just to be uh, sort of competent, to sort of hit the standard marks, um, that what we're really looking for are students who have a different habit of mind. And I think that confidence, that willingness to take risks, to make mistakes, to fail, is really kind of where I think a lot of really interesting work is going. So that was one thing that really stood out to me and I think became much more clear over time. And we wanted our students to have opportunities to see the relevance of what they're learning outside the classroom and to really put a premium on that sense of curiosity. I guess the other thing that became very clear to me is at Grinnell, and this was something that happens sadly, unfortunately, at many universities and colleges is I was struck by the rising incidence of challenges around student mental health, and it became very clear to me that we had a number of students who were beautifully prepared. They'd gone to fabulous schools. They academically were very well trained. They could write well. They had great quantitative skills. And when faced with a significant challenge, they were remarkably fragile, and they had trouble managing stress and anxiety. They had a difficult time handling uncertainty or ambiguity. And it became very clear to me that that was something that at the K-12 level, at the level of the preparatory school, we had to get really serious about. That that social and emotional dimension of education is really, really vital. It's not enough just to graduate students who are academically well-prepared. You've also got to think about how you teach the ability to develop a strong sense of confidence, to navigate ambiguity, to develop the skills that allow you to navigate situations of real stress or uncertainty. Many of us learn those things the hard way. You know, over time, we develop those abilities, but those things can be taught. And those are things that I think we can do quite well. And so I think we realized, and Punahou was on this track well before I arrived, that this was, in fact, something that had to be a central part of the work we did. 
mental health and well-being, we've seen the effects of the last two years and ongoing. And, you know, to me, it's a hidden problem that's going to get worse. We haven't really seen beneath the iceberg yet of what is happening. Some of those important years that our students have had and our kids have had being completely wiped out whilst we've existed and been able to get through education. It's not the same. You know, you talk about human interactions, you know, you build resilience and you build all those things, human interactions, watching social cues. And I do agree, I don't think there's enough probably being done. And it's great to see that you're doing that and you're carrying that honour to Punahou. Because obviously the World Economic Forum, you know, they talk about what are those key skills that employers are looking for. You know, they poll them every five years. You know, critical thinking, creativity, problem solving, adaptability, they're always there. And, you know, data's a commodity like oil now. Why do we need to learn by rote? I have it on my device. What we need to teach our kids is actually how to critically find information that makes sense to solve real-life problems. But I read that you created at Grinnell a new learning initiative centered on technology and data. Tell us more about that and has that focus continued at Punahou? Yeah, so we became very interested in the field of data science. I think we were struck by the extent to which, you know, it became more and more imperative for our students to learn how to navigate this sea of data, this sea of information. Obviously, there was a great deal of demand for this practically, and students with training in this area were very much in demand. And we saw a real shift in enrollment. We saw more and more students taking classes in statistics, in computer science, trying to develop these abilities. And ultimately, we began to think very seriously about sort of the interface of these areas, statistical knowledge, your ability to work with logical systems, and then finally, to figure out how to apply it to what you might define as your domain area of interest. And so, for example, if you took a student who was studying political science, they might be learning how to analyze data figure out how to manipulate, interpret it. And the data they might be working on might be polling data or data around political behavior or data around analyzing particular political messages or information strategies. So we got really interested in trying to create a pathway for students to do this. I should add, too, that we were doing this, in fact, not only in sort of explicitly quantitative areas, we started doing it in the humanities as well. and so. For example, we had a faculty member who became very interested in early modern historical, early modern European concepts of race. How did people in the 17th century think about race? What did they think that it was? How did they interpret or explain it? And this particular faculty member began to build a database of a vast amount of literary sources, primarily in 17th century European sources and then began to help students learn how to do data mining and text analysis to find these references and interpret them and sort of build out a theory of the way that in which people at that point in time imagined or conceived of, of race itself. So it was a really powerful and exciting project. I think what we learned ultimately is that, you know, for many years in education, we were talking about writing across the curriculum. We said that, look, writing is really important. You should learn how to write not just in your English class or your history class, but you should learn how to write in your chemistry class, or you should learn how to write well in your Spanish class or your sociology class. I think what we've come to understand is that in some respects, data now 
is, I would say, thought of in similar terms and should be thought of in similar terms. And we should be thinking and talking about data across the curriculum as a set of skills and abilities that all students need to develop. And at Punahou, I think that's an ongoing discussion. It's really the beginning of a discussion that I think we'll have as we go forward. We have outstanding programs in mathematics. We do teach a statistics course, which is quite popular. Uh, Students are using data in the sciences and psychology and other fields. I would love to see us begin to think about how we do that more broadly, which is, I think, something that we should be leaning into. Data's everywhere. I mean, it's just content. It's just information. I mean, we access it all the time. But again, it's knowing how to mine it, to find it, using technology to help augment the human limitations of being able to scan vast Googles of information, but then to analyze it. You know, I have a lot of data scientists in my business. And the trick is we can have a lot of data, but someone needs to A, cleanse it, understand it. And then the real skill, though, comes on how you segment and then draw insight from it. You know, you can have data, but but we might draw completely different things because you can start to, we can all come up with a different kind of chart based on the same data and give completely different kind of reasons. Because I do worry that we don't teach that skill. I kind of do what I do on the keynotes of schools is that most school leaders don't know how to Google, right? It's a simple task, but you ask every one of your faculty, how many of them have gone past the first page in Google regularly? But I would say that probably 95% haven't. It's the human psychology side. They don't, we're kind of lazy. We're kind of trusting, we're busy. And we kind of hope that this commercial search end is going to give us that piece. So there is something that we don't just trust what's given to us by something that's driven by commerce. There's an ulterior motive to it all. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I want to talk about, so Punahou is one of a kind. It's on an island in the Pacific Ocean between the world's two great powers, the United States and China, places that you've obviously studied and worked in yourself, with a blend of Hawaiian and Western culture and traditions. How does Punahou's place in the world influence its students' educational experience? That's a great question in a couple of ways. It certainly shows up in our curriculum. So we are one of a very small number of uh, schools that require our students to study Asian history. And not too many schools in the United States have that as a requirement. We do. And I think that reflects our sense of place. Uh, If you look at our language offerings, in addition to European languages, like French or Spanish, for example, we offer Japanese and Chinese through the advanced levels. And large numbers of our students will study those languages and become very adept and skilled at them. I think that certainly shapes some of what we do. The interesting piece, too, here is that uh, about two-thirds of our students are students of color, and a significant number of those students, in fact, come from families of of Asian ancestry. And I think that certainly shapes our culture as well. In non-COVID times, we send significant numbers of students to China, to Japan, to study. We have welcomed many visitors and prominent speakers from those countries here as well. Punahou actually going back into the 1980s, in fact, as early as about 1980, began to send students to China at a point where that was really kind of uh, rare and somewhat unheard of. So that's been a big interest of ours, and it's certainly shaped a lot of the curriculum that we pursue. Significant numbers of our alumni also live in East Asia. That's been an asset that we've been able to benefit from. 
And do you feel the effects of what happens on mainland United States? You know, there's been a lot obviously around diversity, equity and inclusion, a lot around race. Um, it's getting quite divisive right now in the States. Do you feel it in the same way on the islands? You know, do you represent the same issues that are happening on mainland America or are you a bit of a bubble? That's a fascinating question. You know, I think that a lot of the same questions are present. How do you create an environment, a school environment, in which all of your students feel that they truly belong? What does really effective, inclusive pedagogy look like, both in your curriculum and in the way you engage with students? How do you reach out to and welcome families from backgrounds which are underrepresented? So I think that many of those questions are still present, but they're played out here in a very different kind of environment. There are lots of places in the United States that you could define as multicultural. And in some ways, I think that means that you have people from different cultures who happen to live in proximity with each other. They may or may not have a whole lot to do with each other, but they happen to live in proximity with each other. In Hawaii, you have, I would describe as, you know, a really profound degree of cultural exchange, intermarriage, sharing of different histories and traditions. This is a place where I think a lot of the lines around race and ethnicity are really very fluid. You know, if you were to stop somebody on the street in Honolulu or talk to some of our students, you might discover that they had a number of heritages which are really fundamental to who they are. I think about the people I grew up with here. My best friend was of mixed Japanese-German ancestry. And you find all kinds of a very high degree of cultural sharing. So I think that the questions are still central, but the way in which they're thought about is quite different. And I would say that a lot of times there's a distinctive kind of local culture which shapes so much of this exchange. And so it has less, I think, to do with the same kind of categories that race or ethnicity would in the mainland United States, and more to do with the way in which one respects, understands, navigates the local culture here. And I think that's a significant piece of it. The other thing I would say, too, is that in Honolulu and in Hawaii, beyond issues of race, issues of class are really quite central. The cost of living is very high. We have an unfortunate situation, as in many parts of the United States, where the gap between those who are quite affluent and those who really live paycheck to paycheck is continuing to grow. And I think one of the questions that a school like ours has to think about and really give a lot of thought to is, what's our social responsibility? How do we continue to recruit and to enroll people who may be the very first in their families to go to a university? How do we recruit and enroll students who come from families who might not be able to cover the cost of the tuition here? I'm very proud of the fact that we're need-blind in admissions. So when we are recruiting and making decisions around admission, our admissions team has no idea whether or not that family has the capacity to pay for a Punahou education. And we've been very fortunate that our alumni, our donors, our friends of the school have provided us with significant resources to provide financial aid to students. But I think there's a really important question about what schools like ours do in terms of contributing to and what higher education and what education at the secondary level does in terms of being an engine to address these longer run structural problems. I don't think those problems are going away. 
And I think we have to, you know, really have some serious conversations about what our role should be. You're absolutely right, you know, and that's the role of all independent schools across the planet. You know, it cannot be an entitlement because you can afford it. And then it becomes of one colour and a certain demographic and it's, and it's not representative of the world and it shouldn't be. So I do think it's a duty of every independent school that has the resources or even the ability to raise resources to make it available to their local community. How do you go about something we struggle with and I've struggled with with some of our clients in the UK they are these elite, very established independent schools known around the world. They do offer scholarships and bursaries and funded places for bright kids or capable kids that have that ambition to be able to get a great education if they have the opportunity. But they don't know about it because they wouldn't even consider it. It's like, why would I even consider applying? Because but that's a really expensive, posh kind of independent school. How do you go about telling the local community that it's equal, right? If you believe you can succeed, you've got something to give, come and apply, right? We're not going to judge you based on where you are, because that's a tough message to communicate. Simon, you just put your finger on a key issue. I'm convinced that there are families who drive by this campus every day who could never imagine that they or their kids could belong on the other side of this wall around our campus. And I think that, you know, we have to figure out what we do to communicate with and to ultimately build a sense that, no, you really could belong here. You really could thrive. I think Punahou's done well in some respects, but I think we have a lot more to do. You know, it's interesting. A few years ago, we began to do much more advertising than we ever did before. And the advertising was communicating that we had substantial financial aid available. You know, we started to get questions from some folks who said, gosh, you know, is, is Punahou in trouble? Are you having a hard time? I've noticed you've started advertising. <laughs> and we said, no, actually, we're trying to reach a population we haven't reached before. It's amazing how things get twisted, isn't it? You try to do a good thing and then people are skeptical of the good deed you're doing. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. But you've got to keep going. Being authentic. I think authenticity is the key and you can't try too hard to be something you're not. And I think a lot of schools do struggle with that in the independent sector. There's a veneer to it all that's maybe too much around promise rather than the authentic reality. Come in, you're going to get a great education. Come and be you, you can thrive. Go out into the world and do amazing things. And it doesn't matter where you come from, how much money you have, because out there, it actually doesn't really matter, right? And it's great to see what you're doing there. I want to touch finally on your time in China because you taught there. And there was supposedly a traditional curse that says, may you live in interesting times. I'm not sure if that saying is real, but we do live in very interesting times. What's your take on current U.S. history and foreign relations, keeping in mind, of course, at Punahou's location between China and the U.S.? An important question and, and a large one. The ongoing, and this is, and I'm speaking solely for myself here as a historian, I think the ongoing challenge for the United States is to... Ultimately, and this is not a new question, you know, in an increasingly globally interdependent world, how does the United States help create the environment in which values around democracy, independence, the opportunity for meaningful economic growth, that those continue to be widely shared? The real challenge I think that we're facing, actually, I think you see this in Ukraine. I think you see it in the rise of, I think, some really interesting sort of right-wing nationalism that's emerging in parts of Europe. 
I think you see it in a number of parts of the world is I think a lot of the very promising steps that were made, even as recently, you know, there was almost this celebratory mood in 1991 as the Soviet Union ultimately collapsed. And there was this hope that the world would now turn in a fundamentally different direction. You know, you had people like Francis Fukuyama arguing that the end of history had arrived and, you know, that the world would all sort of converge on these common values. That's not what's happened. And so I think the challenge is to continue to figure out, well, how do you continue to promote those values in a world that is driven by, sadly, I think some increasing forces of, of nationalism and intolerance, which are, which are really challenging. I don't have a solution to that, but I think that's sort of the ongoing dilemma. It is. And it just feels that everywhere, and you even look to, to mainland America, you know, it's just society is, is polarized. They are in two opposing camps. I mean, how you as an educator and a school explain these divisions to children? Because this is the world that they're in and they're going to go off and hopefully, I always say, make do a better job. You know, how do we go about explaining that? Because, you know, with your background and understanding the historical change, we've never really been in a place like this, have we? You know, I think a lot of it, there certainly have been points in American history where I would argue you would see similar kinds of polarization. And here, I think, again, is where those skills around trying to develop a sufficient sense of empathy that you can understand where the other person's perspective is. Honestly, this is also helping students recognize that they need to be willing to have those discussions with people they disagree with. They need to be willing to read things that they're going to find reprehensible or hard to accept. They may not change what they believe, but they may emerge with a better sense of why they believe what they believe. And that itself is valuable. So, I mean, you know, when John Stuart Mill made those arguments, I think he was actually pointing at something that remains really very significant for us. In the absence of that, and I think, frankly, media and technology have made it all the more easy for you to only listen to or pursue the sources you already agree with. In the absence of that, you know, sort of the democratic values that we hold just begin to completely collapse. If you're incapable of having a meaningful conversation with somebody who you ideologically disagree with, that doesn't bode very well for what you hope a democratic process is going to look like. And the challenges we have to face are enormous. We're spending a lot of time in Hawaii, collection of islands, talking and thinking about sustainability, about climate change and sea level rise and food security. These are really sort of absolute front door pressing issues. They're not going to go away. If anything, they're becoming more serious over time. And we're all in the same boat, literally, or at least on the same island, you know, and we've got to find a way to have meaningful discussions about this. And there are trade-offs, and there's going to be compromises. And, but if we can't even talk about it, then what we're going to do is just, you know, the clock is going to run out on us. And that's not a place we can be. I want to end our conversation, Mike, on an optimistic note. What makes you hopeful for the future? Whenever I walk into a Punahou classroom and I see a group of kids who are so excited about what they're studying, you know, I, I visited a second grade classroom a few weeks ago and the teacher said, okay, it's time for science. And these kids actually got up and cheered. You know, I was like, I was kind of blown away by that. That theme of sustainability, as daunting as it is, there's a generation of children for whom this is not sort of an abstract kind of inherited concept. This is something that they're deeply engaged with, thinking seriously about, leaning into. And I think our hope is to give them the tools and the skills that allow them to go out and address these challenges. And I've been very impressed by 
what I've seen students do and how they've explored the relevance of what they're learning outside the classroom. So I find that very hopeful. And me too. Yeah, absolutely optimistic with the generation coming through. I think they do take social issues, that they take global issues really importantly, right? They take them to heart and they take action. And it's just fantastic seeing that happen. So long may that continue and long may schools like yours keep stewarding them to achieve their best. Mahalo, Mike. Been a pleasure to speak with you. Mahalo. And I had another one, which was Ahui Ho. Until next time. Till next time. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.